Those who have seen Disney and Pixar's Inside Out have likely never forgotten it. It's the touching story of a preteen named Riley, whose life is uprooted when she and her family move from small-town Minnesota to San Francisco. Told from the perspective of her inner emotions, we see the roller coaster ride of Riley's struggle to accept her new environment and the people who inhabit it. While moving and poignant, it isn't without its humor, and, in true Pixar fashion, has several running gags sprinkled throughout. One of the most memorable is probably the triple den gum jingle, which frequently pops into both Riley's and other characters' heads throughout the film. Such are the power of jingles and catchy songs. They have a way of getting lodged into our minds and staying there, sometimes for days on end. But what makes a jingle so memorable? What are some jingles that have become traditional songs in our culture and society? And who were the people responsible for such jingles? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. What makes a jingle or song part of the body of traditional music? The simplest answer would be that they're tried and true. Perhaps there's something about them that's universal or catchy and resonates with the public. Take the Happy Birthday song, for starters, also known as Happy Birthday to You. This tried and true classic has been sung at many a birthday party, and not just in English, mind you, though the Guinness Book of World Records has awarded it the distinction of the most recognized song in English, but upwards of 18 languages and maybe more. But where does this perennial favorite come from? After all, someone had to have composed it. The answer might surprise you. According to tradition, the tune is attributed to one Patty Hill, who served as the principal of a kindergarten based in Louisville, Kentucky, and her sister, pianist and composer Mildred Hill, way back in 1893. Patty conceived of the lyrics to the song in order to celebrate the children's birthdays in her school, while her sister purportedly wrote the music. From then on, as the sisters hadn't copyrighted it, the song found its way throughout the United States, first appearing in print with both music and lyrics in 1912. It's important to note that none of these early incarnations of the song in sheet music form included any credits as to the quote-unquote original composers. Because of this, the veracity of the Hill sisters as being the original composers of the tune remains hotly debated in some circles. Still, both Patty and Mildred serve as an integral part of the Happy Birthday to You story, and were definitely among the first to use it to mark the occasion of someone's birthday. Forty-two years later, however, a copyright was registered at last. In 1935, composer Preston Ware Oram and one R.R. Foreman were credited with writing the song, and were the first to receive royalties for it as a result. For an additional 53 years, the company that had granted Oram and Foreman the rights to Happy Birthday to You made a great deal of money on the song, only to be bought out by American music label Warner Chappelle Music in 1988 for a total of $25 million, with the value of Happy Birthday to You being estimated at around $5 million at the time. Here's where things get a little crazy. In the 27 years that the song was registered under Warner Chappelle Music, no public performances of it were allowed unless royalties were paid. As of 2010, the royalty for a single public use was around $700 and was set to remain so until 2030 when the copyright was due to expire. With the passing of the Copyright Term Extension Act in 1998, the birthday song came into question. This act extended copyright terms to last the life of an author, with an additional 50 years following their death, and was upheld several times in various cases throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, involving high-profile musicians and artists alike. 
but in 2010, after extensively researching the song and its history, Robert F. Brownice, Associate Professor of American Law and Intellectual Property, came to the conclusion that, quote, it is almost certainly no longer under copyright, unquote. This led to the suing of Warner Chappelle Music in 2013 in a landmark case in which they stood accused of falsely claiming ownership over the song. Two years later, their copyright claim was ruled invalid, and the song entered the public domain, where it has been ever since. The case of the birthday song is an exception, not the rule, to most jingles and traditional songs. In fact, many that have entered the public consciousness were composed by big, famous popular songwriters well over a century ago. In those days, popular music, in America at least, was mass-produced in a place called Tin Pan Alley. Confined to West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in Midtown Manhattan in New York, it virtually monopolized the American music industry in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As to how it got its name, it's said that Monroe H. Rosenfeld, in an article in the New York Herald, referred to it as such in reference to the collective sound of what he called cheap upright pianos, which to him resembled the cacophony of tin pans being banged together. By the late 19th century, the name had stuck, and while the music companies and publishers there no longer exist, it still goes by that name by some of the locals. Composers such as Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, who went on to write Broadway shows and Hollywood film scores, got their starts in Tin Pan Alley, and some of the most enduring pop standards were, in fact, written there, including a song that has become synonymous with America's pastime. To put into perspective for those of my listeners outside of the United States, the popularity of the sport of baseball in America is similar to the fervor of football, or soccer here, in Europe and many other countries throughout the world. Most fans are loyal to a specific team, and there's often friendly banter between fans of rival teams. There's also, on occasion, not-so-friendly banter, and brawls have erupted at both games and sports bars over which team is better. In short, baseball remains an emphatic American tradition, an institution, one that shows no signs of going away. But what if I told you that the most famous song about it was penned by two men who hadn't even attended a game prior to its composition? The idea came to Tin Pan Alley lyricist Jack Norworth while riding the New York City subway way back in 1908. As he took a seat in one of the stifling coaches on a particularly balmy summer's day, an advertisement across from him caught his eye. Baseball today, polo grounds, it read. From there the lyrics seemed to pour forth on their own, telling the story of a baseball-obsessed young lady named Katie Casey, whose boyfriend calls upon her for a date. She accepts, but only if he agrees to take her to a baseball game. Norwood's words were set to music by one of the leading popular composers of the day, Albert von Tiltzer, and they soon had a winner on their hands. Despite its reputation for now being played during the so-named seventh-inning stretch, or the halfway point at baseball games, the song reached popularity in the leading entertainment of the time, vaudeville, a type of theatrical variety show that involved musical acts, comedy skits and sketches, and even burlesque striptease. Norworth's own wife, vaudeville star Nora Bays, was the first to sing it, though it soon made its way throughout the vaudeville circuit, not just in New York, but throughout the United States. It wasn't until 1934, however, 26 years after it was written, that it was played at a ballpark for the first time during a high school game in Los Angeles. But it was at the fourth game of the World Series that same year that it was played for the first time at Cardinals Stadium in St. Louis that its reputation as a baseball tradition was cemented. As for the composers themselves, remember when I said that neither one had attended a game prior to the song's composition? Norworth finally made it to a major league game in 1940, a whopping 32 years after Take Me Out to the Ball Game was sung for the first time on a vaudeville stage. As for Von Tiltzer, he managed to beat his songwriting companion by 12 years, having seen his own first major league game in 1928. So now you've had a birthday party and attended a baseball game. It's been a packed day, to say the least, and now it's time for bed. 
What do you do to unwind? You might put on your headphones and listen to some relaxing music. Might I suggest a lullaby? Perhaps one you heard your mother or father sing countless times when you were young. One of the best-known lullabies in English is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's a simple, soothing melody, one that's lulled many an infant and toddler to sleep for several years and generations. But it might surprise you to learn that it didn't start out as a song at all, but as a poem, one composed by the English poet Jane Taylor way back in 1806. With her sister Anne, they published a book of verse together known as Rhymes for the Nursery, from which the term nursery rhymes has entered the English language. The book proved to be a moderate success, but two of the poems they penned, My Mother, written by Anne, and The Star, as it was called then, penned by Jane, were oft-quoted works that were reprinted several times in various publications and children's books of the day. The Star, in particular, became so popular that it was eventually set to music in 1838, and published in The Singing Master, a book of popular songs and ditties compiled by one William Edward Hickson. The tune used for the star was adapted from an earlier French children's song called Ah, vous direz je maman, Ah, shall I tell you mama in English. Though believed to have been composed in the late 17th or early 18th centuries, it rose in popularity in the 1760s, so much so that even Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart wrote a series of 12 variations on it. Initially comprised of five stanzas, only the first has endured, making it one of the most easily recognizable lullabies of all time. What do these three songs all have in common? On the surface, not so much, though they have become traditional in many parts of the world. Though attributed to specific people, some of whom have sadly been forgotten due to the passing of time, they are all now within the public domain, meaning that they belong, so to speak, to the people in much the same way that William Shakespeare's plays are now, 400 years after his death. Copyrights and royalties are important, of course, in that they protect the rights of creators, seeing to it that they receive the recognition they deserve. But, in my opinion, when something enters the public domain, it simply means that it's tried and true, to say nothing of beloved, something that has become etched into the human story and should therefore be celebrated by all of humanity. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this tuneful episode. I decided to try something a little different with this in terms of subject matter, but I hope you found it just as effective and enlightening as my previous episodes. If you wish to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly contributor. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help in big ways, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for a look at the greatest pre-Roman civilization in Italy, one whose influence extended throughout the Mediterranean world, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.